When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Good evening, Rifters. This is Rifts and Rules, the 5e D&D podcast, where we go through the many 5e books and talk about various rules and haunted gameplay experience. I'm Nathan, the Dungeon Master of Riftwake. And now I'm Remy, a player on Riftwake and a Dungeon Master myself. And today we're here to talk about underwater. Glug, glug. Um, wait, no, that's <laughs> drinking water. <laughs> Shit. Oh well, <laughs> move it on. <laughs> so there are all kinds of different biomes of where adventuring in a Dungeons and Dragons world can take place. But one that is honestly probably one of the more difficult and therefore rarely actually dealt with is underwater. So we're going to go through the rules of how to play underwater, and then we'll just have a bit of back and forth about how to actually do that. So uh, just starting off, there are a good number of rules about how combat works underwater on the mechanic side of things. So that's where I'm going to start with this. So this, well, one thing that is somewhat complicating about how to deal with being underwater is the fact that the actual information that is useful is scattered more than a little bit. There's a little bit in the player's handbook. There's a little bit in uh, the Dungeon Master's Guide. And that makes it somewhat tricky. So starting off from the player's handbook side, uh, there is a very small section on underwater combat in the player's handbook. So that is chapter nine. It's the very last section of that chapter. So the rules are as follows. When making a melee weapon attack, a creature that doesn't have a swimming speed, either natural or granted by magic, has disadvantage on the attack roll unless the weapon is a dagger, javelin, short sword, spear, or trident. So... In other words, a creature that does not have a swim speed has a disadvantage on anything that's not a thrusting weapon of some kind, which makes sense because imagine trying to swing a sword underwater. That's not going to go so well. But if you have something that pokes like a javelin or a spear, then yeah, you're kind of going through the water. So no disadvantage. So that does make sense. But the one detail that's very important about that is that it's a creature that doesn't have a swim speed. So that means that any creature that does have a swim speed, whether it is from an aquatic race or a magic item or a warlock invocation, there's a lot of ways to get a swim speed, actually. But anyway, so if you have a swimming speed, you don't have that melee weapon restriction. So if you are playing in a game that has a lot of underwater combat, then it is highly advantageous for such a character to get one of those magic items to give them a swim speed because then they can just do what they need to underwater and not worry about having a much more limited weapon supply. So that's for melee. For ranged weapons, 
a ranged weapon attack automatically misses a target beyond the weapon's normal range. Even against a target within normal range, the attack roll has disadvantage unless the weapon is a crossbow, net, or a weapon that is thrown like a javelin, including spear, dart, or trident. Also, uh, creatures and objects that are fully immersed in water have resistance to fire damage. So the last part's easiest, so I'm just going to go that part quickly. Makes sense. If you're underwater, resistant to fire damage. Cool. But the ranged weapon attack part is interesting also. So normally, a weapon has two ranges, the normal range and the long range. So like a dagger can be thrown for 20 slash 60 feet is usually how that is written down. So that would mean, though, that none of them can get to their long range, but any of them that are not those few listed weapons have disadvantage even at normal range. So this is another of those cases where it seems that the designers are using physics and logic more than they often do in a magic world. So this is actually a detail that I appreciate. So if you have a normal bow underwater... You pull back the string, release your arrow, then a huge amount of that bow's force is not going to pull the arrow because the bow itself is fighting water resistance. So the logic of that actually makes sense. On the other hand, a crossbow is a much different design weapon. It has a much shorter bow to it so that when a crossbow is pulled back and fired, that is not muscle powered. So it is the release of tension in the crossbow itself that propels the bolt. So it makes sense that a crossbow would work much better than a bow underwater. So a bow gets disadvantage, while a crossbow does not. But all ranged weapons underwater cannot go past that normal range. And that creates some rather interesting details to how underwater combat would work. So normally, a lot of player characters and just anyone who in your world has access to feats would want to take the feat Sharpshooter to grant them the ability to fire their full range normally. But in underwater combat, Sharpshooter just flat out loses that ability because a ranged weapon does not have the amount of force to actually travel underwater. So that changes the character building dynamics if you are playing in a game that uses a lot of underwater combat. So the fact that there is the weapon restriction, the range restriction, makes it much harder to play a ranged weapon character in a game where this comes up, or especially if it comes up often. So melee is arguably much less disadvantaged, and a magic user has absolutely no disadvantage because it's magic and that just goes through the water normally. So that is very much something to consider when you're building a character or just in a situation where your group has to go underwater. And also there's the swimming speed restriction for melee combat. Note that that is not the case for ranged weapons. So melee creatures really want to get that swim speed if this is common, but a ranged weapon, it is the type of weapon that matters even more. And swim speed does not help a ranged weapon using character when they're underwater. So that's the basic rules of just being underwater. However, there are some a lot more details that are relevant to it. So another important aspect is just how swimming works. So normally, if a creature just is swimming, it is far more tiring 
than walking is for long periods of time. So this is where we switch over to the Dungeon Master's Guide, where they list in the Environments chapter that a character can only swim an hour instead of the usual eight-hour walk before needing to roll a DC-10 constitution saving throw or gain a level of exhaustion. So if you're playing in a game where you're underwater for potentially, or just on water for long periods of time, then that is something that can very quickly become a problem. However, this is another situation where a character with a swim speed is massively advantaged in that a creature that has a swim speed, which can include natural or with magic, can swim the usual eight hours of a travel day without having to roll these saving throws. Also, a creature, even if they have a swim speed, going to deep water is even more difficult. So this is one of those situations where it's just honestly kind of annoying to think about the rules in that there are a good bit more numbers. So a creature without a swimming speed has trouble with water's pressure and cold temperature. So a creature without a swim speed, every one hour that they swim below 100 feet counts as two hours for the sake of exhaustion. So that's phrased kind of weirdly, because just a moment ago, as I mentioned, it's normally one hour to gain a level of exhaustion. But this says two hours at deep water. That should be phrased differently. It should say that if you're below 100 feet, then it is a every 30 minutes you make the roll instead of being every hour. So that is really badly phrased in the Dungeon Master's Guide. So just to repeat myself for making sure, if you're below 100 feet, every 30 minutes a character would have to roll. Uh, also what's important is that if you go even deeper than that, then it doubles once again if you're below 200 feet. So if a character is that far down, then it's every 15 minutes. But again, in the Dungeon Master's Guide, it is badly phrased in that it says swimming for an hour counts as four hours. So that's, that's stupid. That is badly phrased. It's below 100 feet, two hours. Or sorry, below 100 feet every 30 minutes. Below 200 feet every 15 minutes. However, there's another problem with what I just said. Do you catch that? Not quite. So everything that I just listed is for characters without a swim speed. So a character with a swim speed, none of that matters. And considering the fact that all of what I just talked about was in regards to being below water for hours at a time, then that's somewhat problematic because that would mean that this is a character that somehow has water breathing, but not a swim speed. So that's odd. Anyway. Sure is. So unfortunately, one other thing that definitely ought to be talked about at this point is what happens if you're below water and cannot breathe. So suffocation is dangerous. Well, obviously. But uh, actually, uh, one thing to also mention, drowning does not come up in search to find the rules. It is under suffocating in the player's handbook. That took me far longer than it ought to to have figured that out. Anyway, so suffocation rules. A creature can hold its breath for a number of minutes of one plus its constitution modifier. So a creature with a good constitution of 16 would have a plus three modifier 
So then one plus three, so four minutes, such a character could hold its breath. However, one thing that is important to know is that that's just holding its breath. It can, you know, lose its breath, kind of like losing concentration potentially. So moving on to go into more detail on that. Uh, when a creature runs out of breath or is choking, it can survive for a number of rounds equal to its constitution modifier, minimum one. So at the start of its next turn, it drops to zero hit points and is dying and can't regain hit points or be stabilized until it can breathe again. That is dangerous. So in other words, if a creature gets the breath knocked out of them or just runs out of that time limit, it only has seconds, just a few rounds or else it doesn't matter how strong the character is, it doesn't matter what level they are, they just immediately drop to zero hit points and begin dying. So even if you have a level 20 character, let's say a level 20 fighter with 200 hit points, but you know they fall off a ship and are in plate armor and just sink. If they don't have the ability to have a friendly magic user cast water breathing, or if they don't have a water breathing magic item of their own, they can survive. Let's even say this guy has, uh, you know, full amount of con for a character and let's say they're maxed out at 20. So they have the full plus five modifier. So they sink to the bottom of the sea, can hold their breath for six minutes for that guy. But then in five rounds, they just drop to zero hit points. And since they can't be stabilized, then that would mean their only hope is that on their death-saving throws, they have to roll a 20 to be restored to one hit point, but then they just would start dying again. So even in that best-case scenario, they're almost guaranteed to die. Drowning is horrifically dangerous for adventurers. The fact that there is nothing they can do unless they can get dragged out of the water in time or get some type of magic to allow them air, they're fucked. Anyway, so moving on from that low note, uh, let's see. Underwater combat, suffocation. Oh, uh, sorry, one detail that ought to have been uh, mentioned earlier. There is one more environmental effect that is important in regards to being underwater, which is frigid water. So if the water is particularly cold, which most deep water should be, unless there's like a volcanic vent or some such nearby it, but most deep water should be frigid. And they have their own rules in a whole nother chapter in the Dungeon Master's Guide. So chapter five has got the swimming rules and chapter five also has the frigid water rules. It's just a different section. Anyway, a creature can be immersed in frigid water for a number of minutes equal to its constitution score before suffering any ill effects. Each additional minute spent in frigid water requires a DC 10 constitution saving throw or gain a level of exhaustion. Creatures with resistance or immunity 
to cold damage automatically succeed on the saving throw, as do creatures that are naturally adapted to living in ice-cold water. So that is actually a pretty cool detail that I don't know I've ever actually used before. So just being in the cold, even disregarding air, just because this is just being in cold water at all. So even if your head is still above water breathing, if the water is very cold, you can only be in it for a number of minutes equal to your constitution score. And notice that detail that is constitution score, not modifier. So that 16 constitution fighter could be in for 16 minutes before needing to worry about the constitution saving throws. Well, actually, 17. So it's the constitution score is okay. And then constitution score plus one is when you start need to make these constitution saving throws. So at 17 minutes, it would need a DC 10 save or gain exhaustion. So technically, that does mean that it would take six failed saving throws to go through the levels of exhaustion to death. So even if someone is just floating and still can breathe fine, just being in cold water can kill you. But as it said in that last sentence, if you are resistant or immune to cold damage, you succeed on those saving throws automatically. So someone like a white dragonborn, for example, that has that resistance to cold would not ever have to worry about that. So if you are making a game that uses a lot of underwater combat, a white dragonborn would be a fantastic race choice. So that actually sums up all of the relevant rules of underwater combat. There really aren't a whole lot of details about that. So now let's go into the how side of things. Because underwater, even in our world, is a very mysterious place. And in a fantasy world, there are so many more options on why you would want to do this. Uh, Nathan, you want to pop in? Okay, so... From my perspective, right, um, having things, having the, the reason why you would want to do stuff underwater would be a very interesting thing for you to do. Because as you have seen, right, um, on land, D&D can be very interesting and you can see all these weird and wacky and dangerous monsters and such. But the thing about water is that it's very, very, it's particularly suited for things that immense, things that terrify, because water is dark. It's wet. Uh, <laughs> and these all lend themselves to um, certain cases where imagine you're on the ship and the ship, something happens, there's a massive storm, the ship overturns. And then uh, in the last moments before you pull down the, your magic, like the, the wizard or someone else casts a spell that allows you to breathe. And then you're all dragged down into the depths and then you had to find your way back up but you realize that there's something else in the water. And it's just, there's so many things that you can do with um, underwater situations that spark um, the mind's imagination. So actually, uh, one detail you said there prompted, I missed a thing that is very important to mention, which is underwater visibility. So part of what can make being underwater so fucking scary is that light does not travel that far underwater. So even if you're in clear water and bright light, you can still only see 60 feet in the water. And if it's clear water but dim light, you can only see 30 feet. But 
If the water is murky or if you have no light at all, then you can only see 10 feet around you. So if you're traveling at the bottom of the sea in your party, you can maybe see each other if you're all sticking close together. But if you just go 10 feet away without some light source with you, then you can see nothing. You can hear nothing because you're underwater. You have no sight, no sound, no smell. It is just blank darkness all around you. So you would pretty much just be reduced to your sense of touch as a character. So that sheer isolation of being at the bottom can be scary. And dungeon masters can play with that a lot. There are so many things and so many creatures potentially that can play that kind of horror movie scenario of trapped underwater in the dark. You know, maybe you've got your friends with you, but depending on the party itself, you can really have limited options of what you'd be able to do. Maybe you're on a time limit of, okay, you're, you've got water breathing on the party, but you only have that for so much time. So let's say you need to find a way to get back to shore before everybody drowns. You know, what if, you know, you run out of that magic on you? Or what if you just get lost and just lose track of where you need to go? Or what if there is some, you know, dangerous monster there that is just stalking the party, just waiting to be able to pick someone off? There are adventure scenarios, horror scenarios, all kinds of shit that can be so cool to do. And it is an environment that is so drastically underutilized in general by dungeon masters that I wish that it's something that people would play with more or another potential plot hook option. So a lich's phylactery is always something that they want to heavily defend. So a uh, fun fact, a lich has resistance to cold damage and doesn't need to breathe which actually means that a lich underwater would really not be that disadvantaged. So you can have a lich that just sets themselves up underwater. You know, maybe they have a room that is, you know, dry for the sake of keeping their books, but a good chunk of their lair can just be sunken. Or it could be, you know, a sunken city that they may or may not be responsible for. And the sheer difficulty, imagine just trying to find a lich's phylactery somewhere in the fucking ocean. Good luck with that. Even if you don't choose to use the more horror angle, a totally different direction that you can take is the idea of the underwater city. So in a higher magic D&D world, there are aquatic races that exist. So if you wanted to, a dungeon master could have massive underwater cities that maybe they have a dome for air, or maybe they don't, because if it is for a you know underwater race, they wouldn't need it. So you can have just this totally alien society and architecture of just something different. And you can design just these weird, cool things however you want to. But again, that's an oddly rare thing to actually see done. So in summary, 
there are a number of ways to manage an underwater campaign and a lot of fun things that a dungeon master can do underwater. So please, dungeon masters, sync your players and see what happens. Thanks for listening to this episode of Rest and Rules. Please leave us a review and give us five stars on iTunes. Also, support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Just tell us loads of dollar and even that much really helps us out. Supporters get benefits such as behind the scenes content, early access to episodes, access to the Patreon Discord where you'll be able to chat with the cast, and even a shout out on the show. Find us on social media, on Twitter at Riffwake Podcast, on Facebook as Riffwake, and on Reddit on the subreddit r slash Riffwake Podcast. And now send us an email, riffsandrules at gmail.com. That's riffs and rules at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Bye. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.